Welcome to the Macafab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and recyclable PCBs. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dolman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 393. Oh man, we're getting so close to 400. I know. Just seeing that number tick up slowly. Are we doing anything special? I don't think we are. That's just going to be another regular episode. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think 400 is just going to be a normal yeah, episode. 400. I'm trying to figure out when that's, I mean, yes, yeah, seven weeks, but September, October is like the 10th anniversary of Macrofab. And so it's kind of interesting that episode 400 lies around that time frame as well. That's a lot of episodes. Recently in our Slack channel, I apologize for the person, I don't remember their name, but someone mentioned that. At the beginning of the year, they were like, hey, I want to go back to the beginning and I want to catch up with you guys. And I'm, and I'm like, wait, we're at like 380 episodes when they started this. And they caught up in less than six months of 300 something episodes, which was like two hours of the map every day or something ridiculous like that. So, you know, hats off to you for that. Yeah. Basically listening to two hours every single day of the MacFab Engineering Podcast. So... On that, though, we are working on our new community site. It is almost done, I think. I got the login information for it, and uh, we're kind of, like, fine-tuning it. We'll probably do, like, a pre-release to, like, the people who talk a lot on our community already uh, just to test drive it and make sure everything functions correctly, and we put in all the features we want. But, yeah, I'm really looking forward to moving to this new system for our uh, discussion of the podcast. And then I can finally start working on <laughs> that project that we we're like, yeah, we're totally going to start it this year. We might actually, though, depending on if we get this community back up and running. But it's that uh, power distribution. The car distribution module? Yeah, because I really want to use it on the box truck. But it's interesting how the box truck has evolved on its power requirements because eventually the power distribution module, the PDM was only going to be 12 volt rated. But now with the box truck, the box truck actually runs 48 volt DC. So that's a completely different beast to handle. Was that in your design requirements of the PDM that you were designing handling 48? No, but it is now <laughs> <laughs> with the box truck feature creeped your project. Well, yeah, yeah. Because originally the box truck was just going to be 12 volts all the way through, and 48 volts actually made way more sense for the solar panel setup. So I went that route instead. So the PDM that will now handle solar panel uh, power? Well, no, no, it won't handle solar panel, but it has to handle the 48 volt DC batteries. Sure, okay. So it needs to handle 12 volt and a 48 volt rail. Okay. I, I was hoping that this wouldn't also evolve to be a solar panel controller, you know? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Those are... Solar panel controllers are consumer goods at this point now where like there's hundreds of companies that design and build them and manufacture them and they're inexpensive and they're for yeah i wouldn't say they're inexpensive but they're not super expensive compared to designing and building your own they are inexpensive correct yeah 100 there yeah so our topics this week we kind of got a little sidetracked in the beginning there but our, our topics this week are recyclable pcbs um infineron just teamed up with Jiva, I think. Jiva Materials. Jiva or Jiva? Jiva. I'm not sure. Could be Jiva. Jiva Materials. There is a new Arduino Uno on the block, and we have some project updates, if we get to the project updates. 
Uh, depends on how much we talk about recyclable PCBs and <laughs> Arduinos. So what's up with these recyclable PCBs? And why is Infineon going with them? I don't know exactly why Infineon is going with these, but they're, yeah, their offices are in London. So they sought out to produce recyclable PCB material. Correct. Yeah. So they make a substrate called Solubord that basically replaces our your traditional glass fiber based PCB substrates with, uh, they say it's an all natural fiber. They don't actually say what the fiber is, <laughs> but they say it's all natural. Just bamboo or something. <laughs> Could be bamboo. I actually wouldn't surprise me if it's something similar to bamboo. Yeah. Because bamboo is very, has long fibers just like glass fiber does. Yeah. So from what I can tell from their website, and unfortunately the Jiro material website doesn't have a lot of information because they do, a lot of their stuff is like, oh, you'll know about that at a future press release or we are working on that. Hold on, that kind of stuff. But it is, you know, I, I swear we talked about these guys a while back because their boards actually, so so if you look on the Jiva website, their boards look like, like they're blocks of wood, basically. But if you, uh, some of this other information we have from Infineon shows the boards looking like a, like a, a woven fiber, like fiberglass or, mm-hmm. or uh, FR4. So yeah, I swear we talked about the Jiva side of this a while back. And, and I guess the whole thing, especially with the name Solubord, sort of the magic that they're going here is that there's recyclable and biodegradable substrate material. Oh, you're right. I just looked up Jiva MacFab podcast and episode. I just remember those pictures are burned in my memory. <laughs> episode 291. We talked about okay. two years ago. Two years ago, we <laughs> talked about Jiva materials. So it yeah, took two yeah. years for the first kind of OEM to get on board of this, which is Infineron. Yeah. So I guess the hallmark of this material is that it breaks apart in water, right? Yeah, so it has a, they say, non-toxic polymer that binds all the fibers together. And then when you immerse it in hot water, the polymer dissolves, leaving compostable organic material. All your components and copper traces fall off the board. And then polymer in the water, supposedly you can just dispose of it like normal wastewater. They don't say what it is, but they say that you can just put down the drain. Hmm. So... Basically, what they're trying to do is, one, make it easier to recyclable, recycle electronics. Because mm-hmm. right now, it's you basically have to desolder all the components. So you have to heat the boards way back up and remove all the components that way. And then you basically, like, they ground the fiberglass into dust and mix it with, like, concrete or whatever, <laughs> whatever they want to use it for. There's not much you can use, like, ground up fiberglass for. It's, it's not like asphalt. No, no. But so the big thing is it's easier to recycle. One, and you know, taking it apart. And two, the materials are supposedly biodegradable. And all this gives you basically a PCB that's... I, I don't really like this term, carbon footprint. Like, does anyone really know what carbon footprint even means? I would say the average person doesn't actually have a solid grasp of what that means. Yeah, it's basically like, honestly, how much CO2 your process emits, right? And it's usually in weight of carbon. So these are actual numbers that are on their website. So this is great. A solubord, one square meter of solubord produces 7.1 kilogram of carbon footprint. 
and but a normal FR4 is 17.7 kilograms. So you actually have a reduction of over half. I think they say like 60% of how much carbon you waste or emit hmm. into the atmosphere or into the environment, I guess. Well, but so that's that's a good thing. It, it is. And okay, so this article we have here talking about Infineon, and the article is directly from Infineon, mentions that they're looking to use these boards. And their application is demo boards. And I think that's a perfect situation for these, you know, because they can ship out, you know, a handful of transistors on a board so you can play with them in the lab. And when you're done, they don't just become e-waste or just whatever marketing material that ends up in a lab somewhere or in a trash bin or on your desk for 10 years and then a trash bin. That kind of situation makes the most sense. Because the the thing about it with them on top of that is not just it becoming e-waste, now you can just dissolve your demo board and now you have the component and that you can use on your prototype. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm assuming these solder like a regular board so you could no, just... the parts just dissolve off of it with the paste. But when you dissolve it off, the traces and everything are still there, right? So you still have to like get these floppy traces off. <laughs> yeah, but you can just like wick it off with your iron instead of having sure. it like desolder... Like, try to desolder like a QFN or QFP off a board Yeah, would be a lot, you know, you have to have a hot air gun and all that stuff, and you might bend leads, whereas this, you just kind of, you can just pluck each trace off one at a time. Yeah, and I guess that actually stresses the part a lot less, because you don't have to heat the snot out of the part to get it off. You just melt the board away from it, and there you go, you have the part available. Yeah, it's. I think that's a pretty cool little situation for it, because the whole thing about it being destroyed with moisture is automatically going to make this not a viable solution for products. You know, you say that, and if the life cycle of your product is only a couple years, which a lot of electronics that are built now are, and this this is going to frustrate everyone that listens to our podcast, and it's going to frustrate you. <laughs> I was about to say, this is going to frustrate me. <laughs> and it frustrates me as well, where, like, we don't look at electronics as disposable devices at all. When we go buy something, we want it to last forever. But that's not how normal consumers act at all. Most electronic devices probably only have like three or four years before they're done and they get thrown away. And that's why I'm looking at stuff like this is perfect application for those devices that only have three, four years. And then now at least those devices have an easier path to be recycled instead of filling up the landfill more. You know, although I agree with you on that, I the thing about it is for that consumer that is so used to buy the thing and then throw the thing away when I'm done with it, which is probably way before the thing actually breaks, the designer or the company that makes the device needs to ensure that it is reliable for the l expected lifetime of the device. Even if that's two, three, four years it needs to work all the time with that. And so I would be really worried about the reliability of a board like this because what's worse from a company's perspective, is it worse that somebody throws something away or is it worse that it doesn't work and they write you a terrible review and they dog your product? Yeah, that's, you know, from the company's perspective, they're going to be way more worried about the bad review than someone polluting. Yeah, so that's, I started looking at like, is this even, this goes off your thing is, how long do these boards last like in normal environments, like 
like a cell phone in Houston. Right? In Houston. <laughs> so apparently, because they the polymer they use, this is just me inferring reading their materials. The polymer they use only really starts to break down at really high temps. And we're talking at like above like 100, probably over 160 Fahrenheit or higher. Okay. Because they have a, uh, from the FAQ page, I was like, well, if it dissolves in water, how do you build these? Because like most boards get washed at some point in their process. So is this like a no clean only and you literally can't wash them at all? No, they actually say that most water wash is the temperature of the water is underneath the activation of the polymer, basically. Okay, so that changes the game because if you want to recycle them, if you have to boil the boards. Yeah, you basically have to boil them. Then that's not a normal atmosphere for circuit boards. So I think that's totally reasonable then. Yeah, so just don't send these boards to Venus. (laughs) Right. That's a little bit past boiling, but yes. Yeah, so like it's supposedly compatible with aqueous, they say aqueous PCB fabrication processes, and it's resistant to high humidity environments. And I bet you that's just from the nature of, it would have to be like twice as hot as it is here in Houston right now to start melting or dissolving these boards. Well, twice as hot would be close to boiling. It would be close to boiling. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So 100% humidity, at 212F. Yes. And then your product fails. Then your product fails. I would, my guess is a lot of other products would fail too. <laughs> yeah, a lot of other products would fail too. <laughs> Especially anything with a battery in it. Yeah. So yeah, this it's kind of interesting. I was actually looking at this kind of material would be really cool for stuff that you were talking about, like promotional materials. Yeah. Which I always have a big problem with promotional materials because a lot of times it ends up just being wasteful. Mm-hmm. And I just don't like e-waste like, I see a lot of, like, PCB rulers and stuff like that. Or keychains. Or keychains. Yeah, it's, it's stuff like that. And, like, one kind of promotional material that's not useless, like pens. Pens are great, right? Because everyone can use pens. But the thing is, like, how many people out there have, like, a drawer full of pens nowadays? Basically everyone. Yeah, basically everyone's got one of those. So it's like, well, that just gets tossed in that drawer now. Where, like, your kids will have to inherit your pin drawer and figure out what they need to do with it when you're dead. So all of the images I'm seeing of these boards, they're really simplistic. They look like two-layer at most. Mm -hmm. Some of the boards don't even really look like two-layer. They look like, you know, here's some parts soldered to one side of a board, but no traces or holes. I wonder if the technology of the substrate kind of limits its layer count to basically two, which it could be then, then it is really stuck in like promotional material land. Well, you can also think about like appliances usually use one layer boards. That's true. So this would be great for like appliances, uh, especially where like a lot of appliances now, which are unfortunately starting to go the once it's broken, you just replace it kind of thing, which I also really hate. Mm hmm. Like you've heard on this podcast a lot of times where Steven is like fixing his heater or his dryer. <laughs> yeah. I fix like my dishwasher all the time. I fixed my my furnace twice. Yeah. Since moving in here. Yeah. I think what the biggest problem they, they might have is the copper foil. Getting the copper foil to stick to this substrate with a water soluble, well, hot water soluble compound and that kind of stuff. And also, like, making it co-planar. That's also 
that's one thing that people don't think about, like how flat the PCBs are for components. And when you like look at their promotional material, it literally looks like wood, which is not flat. <laughs> yeah, it's also susceptible to warping. Yes. Yeah, so that, but that's their biggest problems is what they're trying to solve is making sure that they're flat and then making sure that they can stick the copper on with the uh, right complainarity. Oh, this is cool. Okay, so on their website, in their news section, they actually have images that look a little bit more new where they're showing, you know, clearly done surface mount pads with... Oh, yeah, yeah, I see that uh, now. ...with through-hole stuff, but they actually applied solder mask to it because a lot of their boards just look like, we said, wood. <laughs> yeah. It, it actually just looked like laser-cut wood is what some of their stuff looks like. But But this newer stuff actually looks PCB-ish. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jiva or Jiva Materials, if you're out there and listening to this podcast, hit us up. I'd love to try building boards with it and running it through our process here at Macrofab. It'd be awesome to experiment with it. I wonder, ah, you know, if, I wonder if they have, because they're using natural fibers, I wonder if they have the capability of making rigid flex boards and not the like normal rigid flex like molding a pcb to a shape and then solidifying it into that shape i wonder if oh like doing like a mold yeah 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 like could you wrap one of their boards like basically could you have it in a flexible condition wrap it around some three-dimensional shape and then harden it that way and then you have a board that's flexible i mean, I guess you could technically do that with a normal gloss fiber board I think you could if you were involved in the process before, like way early when they're actually forming the fiberglass. Yeah, maybe sheets. Like when they're when they're impregnating the resin and stuff like that. But I wonder if this lends towards that. That would be a completely different way of thinking about design. Like engineers usually don't think in that way. Like a board is a flat, rigid object, and if you need three dimensional things, that's either a flex board or connectors or something of that sort, but thinking of it in a more organic shape could be thinking about design in an organic way would lend to some really cool ideas. Yeah. I love to build like a conference badge or something with this in mind. So when like a couple years down the road, people don't care about it anymore. They just toss in a big old boiling pot and mix it all up, make a PCB soup. That would actually be, that would make for a really cool, perhaps this is letting the cat out of the bag. Uh, even though there is no cat to let out. But that would make for a really cool puzzle that if you're you're working on the badge and then it like somehow it informs you, it's like throw me in boiling water or something like that. <laughs> and and you could yeah. expose something as part of a challenge. That would be really cool. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out how would you hide something in there? Oh, it would be, okay. It would be really cool if there was a part that you had to use on a, different part of the badge and the only way to get that part off is to just boil it off and then you you could take it off and connect it some other way that would be really cool yeah that would be really cool the uh the hardest part of doing something like that would just be convincing somebody that that's what you have to do but you know at okay at defcon there's coffee makers everywhere like you'd have to tell them like yeah put the board in the carafe and start it up yeah That'd be really cool. Boil your badge. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I got it. I actually, so you can solder the board, uh, solder the part to a board, like a one inch by one inch board. And 
what you do is you have to you tell people that, and then on like another board you have like a socket, right? And they have to put that part onto that socket, and the way they do it is by boiling that board, and then that part you know floats off, and then they can pluck it out and put it on their board. Hmm. That'd be the way to do it, I think. Or you could do something that some kind of challenge where the only way of getting it off would be boiling it. If you tried to hot air a part off, you could put a temp sensor next to it and it would detect that and like brick the part and be like, you didn't follow the rules. <laughs> and oh, so it would have to be like, if it detects a temperature over like 220. Yeah, right. And then, then it, yeah. But it would have to work while being boiled live. <laughs> yeah, that, I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of how do you make that work? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's okay if they desolder it, but you give them the option of this cool, like, dissolving it. Hmm. So you board Jiva, Jiva materials. We're going to get one of them, like, someone from there on this podcast, and they'll be like, it's Java or something else like that. <laughs> yeah. You've been pronouncing every possible way wrong. Yeah, every way wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're out there and listening, totally want to try out the material. Let us know how we can do that. You know, okay, so I've been working with Infineon recently a good bit because they have a lot of parts that are space worthy. And uh, <laughs> is that an option you can click in Mauser? You know, actually, in a lot of cases, it is like it'll just be like, what's your application? Space. And <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah, which is kind of funny. Anything but Earth, right, is, is, is your option. That is true. It, you're right. It is. It could just be location. It says Earth and then other. <laughs> other, yeah. Yeah, all the rest of the 99 point, however many 9% of the universe is what my application is, right? But, but okay, so I would be kind of curious because some of the stuff we buy from Infineon, just due to the nature of it being space, you know, a, a $1 transistor is not $1. It's $200 for that one transistor or $700 for this IC or whatever for, you know, you buy a hundred and this quantity price is 700, you know, something like that. I would be really curious if, if you're spending that kind of money and then you get one of these boards and you're like, what the hell is this? I wonder if there's a perception behind that where it's like, I don't know. This seems kind of junky. And I'm not saying that as in like, I feel that way. I, I'm just, I am curious about what are they putting on these demo boards to send out with this stuff? And then, mm -hmm. cause the demo boards they, they show on here on this, this article don't really like build up the whole, Hey, this is biodegradable and, and recyclable. It just looks like a Brown board. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's like, you know, documentation or, or stuff that comes along with it. It's like, here's your demo board. Oh, Hey, by the way, it's got this really cool feature above and beyond that. So could be, I don't know. I could see space guys kind of thumbing their nose at, at something like that. Cause it's gotta be on like a perfect PCB. It's gotta be like perfectly space worthy. And we spend all this money. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think that would matter. I definitely know consumers won't care. No. And that's probably, I could see this more in that category. Like being on the, all the boards that go into a TV, which is definitely where like a lot of the throwaway, like people only use a TV for a couple of years and then they go, oh, I need the bigger TV now. I need a smarter TV. Uh. <laughs> Smart TVs are not your thing, right? No, not at all. Yeah. This TV that should cost $800 cost 150 
Because it's recording everything that you do. Every button click you do goes to the mothership. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I Once again, I think consumers would probably think this is really cool. As long as it doesn't change the reliability of their product, this is really cool. That's yes. That's where this fits. Yeah. And so I think if they get the the complainer complain complainerarity <laughs> down. <laughs> yep, that. That that. Yep. Um if they get that down and they make sure that the copper is sticking well enough to it and they well, you're also looking at if it's got vias. How much does the board swell over temperature and moisture? In the picture, okay, this this is another thing that might be eh, a little bit iffy on it. In all the pictures, I've been trying to find where they have barrels of through holes plated, and it kind of doesn't look like it. You're actually right. The one image that actually does look like a normal PCB. Because they put solder mask on it. It has solder mask on it, yeah. basically. It has solder mask and silkscreen on it. The barrels don't have... V, uh, don't have they're not plated through not plated but again though it, that looks like it's super close and actually it has like an enig finish on it and it looks mostly smooth and and like you were saying if it's a single layer board for cheap applications that that works right mm-hmm. but they might be working on it i mean they just got another round of funding a couple months ago according to their news articles that they have on their website Interesting stuff. I am looking forward to it because this is actually something that is new, I guess, in this space. It's novel. I say new. We talked about two years ago, <laughs> but at least someone's using it now. Yeah. And I do think it's something that does solve some of the problems that we have with electronics manufacturing, which is the end of life cycle. And we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, what's so it's called design for like designed for EOL, designed for recyclability, that kind of stuff. No one really thinks about that at all. There's a lot of design fours you can you can spin your wheels on. Oh, yeah. I mean, just two weeks ago, we talked about design for snacky. <laughs> right, right. The snack machine. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of design fours. There's probably one for every letter of the alphabet, easily. Oh, easily. Uh, I I wonder how this material handles other solvents like acetone or alcohol or other things that a board may come in contact with if if those because because if ipa eats through it that would be a problem yeah you would have to basically only use water wash at that point yeah simple green simple green yeah (laughs) (laughs) that would probably eat it right up i bet you it would simple green yeah yeah, cool stuff. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing this. Either we'll talk about it really soon because they've reached out to us, or we'll talk about it in another two years. <laughs> Bring it on. But yeah, when someone else has a has a cool board and we, we pull it up, it's like, hey, this is really neat. Yeah, be episode 512. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, next topic. The new, in quote, Arduino Uno. This probably came out three, four weeks ago at this point, right? It's actually, I think, about a week before DEF CON. But uh, the Arduino Uno is finally getting a revision. It's going from R3, revision 3, to 4 now. And it is quite a bit different. The old school at Mega 328P, the 328, which has, it was like the second microcontroller that Arduino ever used. Because it was the first one was like the 128. The 128, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was the 128 first. 
and then they went to the 328, and then they eventually went to the 328P, I think. That's right. But Oh, and uh, with the the PB, I think they moved to that. Yeah, the PB. That could be it. But yeah, it was replaced with the with an arm, a 32-bit arm. So they went from 8-bit to 32-bit, and it's a Cortex-M4. So it's got a lot of horsepower under the hood now. Yeah, there's some grunt there. It's also uh, ripping at 48 megahertz as opposed to 16. Yeah, and those arms are just way more efficient per clock cycle, too. And it's actually a bit cheaper as well. Oh, it is? Yeah, because for the longest time, an Arduino Uno was, what, $30, $35, something like that? Yeah, somewhere in that range. According to the website right now, the Uno R4 Minima, which is basically the the direct copy of the, the Uno, is $20 US. Oh, that's not bad at all. No. But yeah, so you were saying that the, the Minima, but there's also, that's one of the flavors that comes in now. Yeah. The uh, other flavor is uh, Rocky Road. Nah, it's, it's Wi-Fi. It has a Wi-Fi edition that also does Bluetooth. They should have given it a name as opposed to just said Wi-Fi. Yeah, because Minima is actually a kind of a cool name for a board. It is, yeah. Yeah. And so there's some very interesting differences. So I, I delve into the tech sheets for both of these two versions. And it's very interesting that they're they are quite a bit different. Mm. And I actually, I'm, I was thinking, like, why would you, it, for me, like, Arduino of old would never have called both these. Well, they probably would have called the Minima, the Uno, and they would have called the Wi-Fi something else, some other name. Yeah. Because yeah. they have tons of other Wi-Fi boards. They have just a ton of boards in general. They do. If you go to the Arduino website, they have way more boards than you think they have. And I've I've seen like four of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting is the differences between these two, the Minima and Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi has like an ESP on it. It has its own other microcontroller to handle the Wi-Fi, which I thought was very interesting that they went that route. Instead of I picking- think they did that because it's just an all-in-one package that they could slap down on the board, and there you go, you have Wi-Fi. And it's cheap, too. Oh, yeah, real cheap. Or inexpensive, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. I bet you they have their own custom ESP32 on there. Thing that this. does this, yeah, could be. But the... <laughs> The Minima has a um, actual SWD debug connector on it, the the 10-pin connector for it. Uh, so you can hook up like a Atmel ICE connect uh, debugger or any. There's tons of other debuggers. Yeah, you can lift the hood and really dive deep, as opposed to just putting a whole bunch of printf statements in your in your code. Exactly. But what's interesting is the Wi-Fi version doesn't have that. Yeah. Well, the Wi-Fi, I'm looking at the board right now. It's pretty jam-packed. They just didn't really have a lot of room to put it. Well, so they added a LED matrix to the Wi-Fi version, well, right. which takes up a lot of board real estate. And I'm like, I'd rather have had the debug connector on it. Yeah, but it draws a heart. Blinky <laughs> is now completely re- redone. It's like Banner. Yeah, you can now blink a 12 by 8 matrix display <laughs> yeah all at once all at once yeah i just think that's so weird like it, it is a little excessive the minima which the minimal version of this has the debug connector and the what you would call like the full featured uno doesn't have it given what arduinos are used for i, I kind of in a way understand or at least this is this is my train of thought when it comes to that led matrix if somebody's getting into the game and they're trying to go Wi-Fi, 
the LED matrix probably makes it really, really easy for you to display something and just say like, hey, I connected to the outside world and I got something back and it's more informative than just a blinking LED. Like you can display letters or, or something on, on that. So it, in, in effect, it gives you a little bit of a screen and you don't have to know how to manipulate the serial monitor. You don't have to do any of this other stuff. So I wouldn't be surprised if they put some thought into that. It's like, how do we make this as easy as possible for people to actually go and get started with, you know, programming something over Wi-Fi? Mm-hmm. But maybe I'm just talking out of my butt and they were like, hey, let's just add a matrix. That'd be cool. <laughs> Could be. So, okay, I've had I've had some gripes with Arduino from a long time ago. And, and I'm curious if they're ever going to fix them because I feel like this would have been a really good time to fix some of the gripes about them. First of all, they kept the form factor of the Uno. And the form factor of the Uno is is fine. It's compact. It's small. But the whole pattern for mounting holes is kind of wonky. I would think that, like, Arduinos are hobby-grade. They're meant for hobbyists. They're meant for people to be able to put stuff together really easily on it. I, I feel like they should have moved the holes around to put them into a, a rectangular pattern so it's way easier for somebody to drill out and mount it. It's not in a rectangular pattern. So if you want to mount this to something and you need to drill holes, you have to like print paper templates and things like that and try to get it right. A rectangular pattern would have been way better. Now, on top of that, I've had this problem multiple times with Arduino. The holes that they give for mounting the screws there's no clearance for the heads of the screws. So you end up having to do something goofy like buy a smaller flathead screw and just hope that the the angle of the flathead holds it in place because there's crap right next to the holes. They just gave no clearance for them. And it looks like the minima and the Wi-Fi still maintain this these issues. Like... I get that there's a lot of like... Oh, you're also talking about the 50 mil gap too. Well, yeah, the 50 mil gap with the with the uh, the pin headers, the female pin headers on both sides. In fact, the 50 mil gap is so goofy that they... I think in the R3 version, they had like custom headers made that span that 50 mil gap. In fact, they have custom mm-hmm. headers that have silkscreen printed on the headers. They look really slick and sharp. But you could have just fixed it. Now, you could say, hey, we're drawing a line in the sand. R3 and before are this footprint. R4 and above fix these issues. Yeah, that does mean you would need different shields, I I think is what they call them, for your R4s and above. But from what I've been reading, you're going to need that anyway in a lot of situations. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't work on an R4 that does work on an R3. Uh, so they're mostly compatible, but not fully. So I don't know. I've always been of the mindset where it's like, eventually you got to bite the bullet and fix things, but maybe they never will with this. And it's funny because on Arduinos I've purchased in the past come with a little plastic sled that they fit into that has nice mounting hole patterns in it. It's like the board yeah. could just have that, right? Yep. So Save some carbon footprint. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, now, one thing that I don't know how Arduino does it. They must have they must have worked out some kind of a deal. Their silkscreen on their boards looks phenomenal on all of their boards. It is super crisp. It is super sharp. And the smallest little things are very readable. And I think it's funny because like 
you look at these higher grade, I say higher grade, you look at these boards that are not hobbyist grade stuff, their silkscreen looks like garbage compared to this. Somehow Arduino got it down where their silkscreen process is registered really fantastic and looks gorgeous on every board I've seen. Now, the knockoffs don't usually look as good, but like I'm saying the official, the real deal. I do like that they moved to USB-C. That's pretty cool. Yes. I kind of want to see what their implementation of that is going to be like. Yeah, I'm looking at their board layout, and it I, it doesn't look like they're utilizing a lot of the pins on the C. No, they're probably using the USB 2.0 stuff. Yeah. And it is a different color, too. The older, or the R3 Arduinos were kind of that tealish blue color. This is like a more royal, almost navy kind of blue. Yeah. Okay, I found a schematic. Yeah, they're actually using one of those, um, the minimal USB-C connectors, which has like reduced pin counts. Yeah, possibly. It only does USB 2.0. Which is fine, because that's what this needs. You know, uh, actually, one of the things that they added in here, I guess it's it's inherent to the processor, but uh, this has HID support. So you can use your Arduino to spoof keyboard and mouse moves, which is pretty neat. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, and they're using uh, 5.1 kilo ohm pull-downs on CC1 and 2. Oh, okay. On the connector. So, yeah, it's the normal, well, I would say bog-standard USB Type-C implementation. Sure. So the minima goes for $20 US, and the Wi-Fi goes for $27. So It's not bad at all. No, that's that's really good. I, I honestly would have expected it to be more. Me too. You know, and, and so Raspberry Pi has bit the bullet. Yeah. They've changed footprints. They've changed connector locations. They've changed stuff. And I don't hear people going, you know, nuts about that. No. I feel like Arduino could do it. I think they could have too. Yeah. But it might be because also Arduino has, like if you look at their hardware portfolio, it's a lot larger than Raspberry Pi. True. Uh, and that might be the reason why, is the portfolio is so much different. Like you got the Pi Pico, and then like the Raspberry Pi one two three four, and then the compute modules, and that's it for Raspberry Pi. You know, we talked about. Remember the Arduino? What is it? The Opta, mm-hmm. their little PLC module. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that you were wanting to get one of those. Did you ever snag one? I've got one of those. Oh, you do? Yeah. Have you fired it up? I played around a little bit with it, and then. Got moved to a different project, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> well, yeah, what's new, right? Yep. It's it's pretty neat. But I definitely want to keep working on it because it's got a ladder logic implementation. Oh, so it has like a, it has its own language for PLC programming? Yeah, supposedly. So I really want to just experiment with that. Yeah, and it comes in a neat DIN rail mount case, so it is ready to go in a box. It honestly looks like it should live in an industrial cabinet. It looks great. I mean, that's that was their intent, right? Mm-hmm. Although it does look, I mean, for a PLC, it looks like a it looks like a really stripped down PLC. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's small, but it's also 160 bucks, so it's a lot smaller for sure. It's a little bit. It's kind of like I don't want to downplay it too much because I know nothing about it, but it it, it kind of gives off the vibe of my first PLC, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks really neat. Then that would be the Fisher Price one. Fisher, it'd be yellow, blue, and red. <laughs> Oh, wow. It actually has, no, it actually has lots of different languages. Ladder diagram, functional block diagram, sequential function chart, structured text, and instruction list. 
Yeah, I think you could also just like program it in Arduino as well if you wanted to. That's cool. Yeah, I think it just does everything. Yeah. Oh, do you want to talk a little bit about your CNC? Yeah, let's touch on that real quick. We, I guess we have a little bit of time. So quick update on the CNC, which, gosh, the CNC project is probably about a year old now. I, I really started envisioning it this time-ish last year. And at this point, the CNC is up and running. Like I have the machine doing what I want it to do, and I've already cut a handful of cabinets on it. And uh, I'm very pleased with what I'm getting out of it so far. The main problems I've actually run into have nothing to do with the machine itself. It has to do with recently purchasing plywood from multiple different vendors here in town. I'm getting garbage plywood. And I'm not talking about like your big box orange and blue stores. I'm, I'm going to actual lumber yard and picking up stuff that's supposed to be nice. And it has come warped and crap. And even when I've tried to, you know, pick my own sheet from the stack, it's been bad. So I've had some issues with workpiece holding because the uh, the pieces are so warped that as soon as you cut through the material, it relieves stress. And it, it springs up. Springs up, yeah. And so I'm my biggest hurdle now is finding a new lumber yard that actually treats their material well. Uh, because I tried two different locations here in town and, and both of them were bad, which sucks because I've had success with both of them in the past, but that was pre COVID. And I've noticed that Baltic birch has gone down in quality considerably since COVID. And also since the war in Ukraine, because there's, Baltic birch comes from that general area of the world. And so the the material we've been getting has been not fantastic. So I'm working through what's the best method for holding a full sheet of plywood. I have methods that are, you know, basically involve screwing it down to the board, which works, but it's a giant pain in the butt. I would love to do cuts with holding tabs and then, you know, saw the holding tabs off. But those don't work if your material isn't flat to begin with. You know, I, I can deal with a little bit of warp in, in my plywood, but I can't deal with like an eighth of an inch of warp across a foot, you know, that like mm -hmm. all the pieces are cupped and that's just no bueno. So, but let's put it this way. If that's the biggest problem I'm having with my machine, I'm calling that a success. Like I, the material's the problem, not the machine. I've, cut a handful of pieces and done a bunch of squareness checks and it's cutting fantastic. It also cuts really fast and the accuracy is well within what I need it to be. So overall, I would say this project, I'm going to actually call it done, even though there's a ton more to do. It's similar to Parker's Jeep where it's done, but it's not done, right? Like, yeah, there's always a little tiny stuff to do. I need to add emergency switches, emergency stops to the machine. I haven't done that yet. And that's like whenever I find a, an evening where I'm like, okay, I just need Whenever to, you need it. <laughs> yeah. Once I've been mutilated by the machine, I'll be like, now oh, it's time to do it. No. Uh, yeah, I just need to put those together and get them installed. I, I have some ideas about getting some uh, dust removal. And that involves, that's a slightly larger project because I'm going to plumb PVC through my basement for a larger dust collection system for more than just that machine. So that's a bigger thing. Regardless, the way I'm, I'm treating it is I can cut things and get product off of my machine 
that means it's done for the time being. I could deal with, you know, hand vacuuming the dust for the for the time being or software emergency stops at the moment. <laughs> I do need to add those the actual emergency stop buttons, but so I I cut cabinets for stuff and I've got the cabinets and then I needed to build some electronics to actually go inside the cabinets which I've just finished last night. So I have two cabinets that I'm going to work on soon in terms of decorating them. In fact, we have a three-day weekend coming up here for Labor Day, and that's a perfect excuse to spend a Saturday decorating some cabinets. So as soon as those two are done, I'll post some pictures in our Slack channel of that. Oh, that's this weekend. That's this weekend, yeah. Oh. Yeah, it feels good, doesn't it? Now this week feels great. <laughs> it went from crap to great. Yeah. Now nah, this week's not been... You know, actually, I have not taken any pictures of the machine in its done state. So I'll do that and post them sometime this week. Oh, and uh, I guess now that it is commissioned-ish, I've got some projects to cut for you. So Oh, yeah. We'll, uh, we'll have yeah. to figure that out. Steven's going to help me do... Well, I think there's two projects. The big one, though, is doing the interior of the box truck. Yeah. So that's going to be probably drive up there. I, I'm going to say it's probably springtime next year. Okay. And then, like, take some time off and then, like, go build the interior of the box truck up in Denver. One, the weather would be amazing. And two, you have a CNC so we can cut everything perfectly. Yep. Instead of me trying to cut it by hand. And a lot of 80-20. <laughs> Grab a beer and you press oh, go. on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On CNC. Yeah. Uh, I found a local shop here in Houston that is a uh, distributor for 80-20. Ooh, that's great because you can save a ton on shipping. Yeah, because I was looking at getting the uh, aluminum extrusions for the solar panel rack that I'm designing for the box truck, which we'll talk about probably next week in more detail. But basically, like the couple places I was finding online, it was basically double the price to ship it. So it was like 500 bucks for all the aluminum. And I was like, you know what? That's not too bad. Yeah. And then I get the shipping. It's like, oh, it's $550 to ship it. And I'm like... You know, I wonder if there's a local distributor. And fortunately, there is one here in Houston. Nice. And I got to call them up and be like, okay, here's my cut list. When can I come pick it up? Whenever I bought all the aluminum for my machine, I saved a ton on shipping by finding a local source. I paid a little bit more per stick that I bought mm -hmm. from them, but I got free shipping because... They just said, we'll throw it on the truck that normally comes to our store. And you'll just, you get it when you get it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, that's fine. I can wait. I'm not like chomping at the bit for it. So I, I got basically free shipping and slightly higher per unit price. So this place actually has all, all of it on hand. That's cool. So they actually have a warehouse that they, so there's like a front shop to like, if you want to build something through them, you can give them your design or they can design it for you but they also just sell the material. And I'm like, perfect. I can just show up there with a cut list, just like going to the steel yard, except it's an aluminum extrusion yard. Yeah. So we'll see how that works out. I shopped a bunch of places at first because I wanted my machine to be screwed together with no extra labor. So I was really pretty anal about cut tolerances. And the place I went with held 10 thousandths of an inch tolerance. Oh, wow. On two meters which is yeah, that's pretty good. really, really freaking good. I didn't have to change or adjust anything for my machine. I just 
got it and screwed it together. So that's the one thing about I found with, with cut tolerances. Some places will guarantee like half an inch on anything. And so <laughs> if you're okay with dealing with that kind of tolerance. If it's within an eighth of an inch, it'll probably be fine for my box truck roof rack. Yeah. But anything more than an eighth probably won't work. Yeah. I mean, you could, it's really, really easy to cut 80-20 also. So That's true. I have a table saw that cuts lots of aluminum. I haven't, I haven't done it on a table saw. I've done it on, um, I've got a grinder. Chop saw? I, well, I, I've got a chop saw for metal, and it just chewed right through that. What, what's those called, though? Um, a grinding wheel, whatever they're called. I don't know. Cutoff wheel. Cutoff wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the big 12-inch cutoff it's wheel. It's a big cutoff wheel. Yeah. No, a, uh, before um, Macrofab, when I worked for Dynamic Perception, we cut all our aluminum extrusion with a chop saw, a, wood, a DeWalt chop saw. Not the right tool, but it worked great. Yeah, that's like a totally incorrect RPM, right? Yeah, it worked great, though. <laughs> you just put a metal cutting blade on it? No, it was a wood blade, cross-cut blade. You just used a wood, a wood blade on it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's why, no, I literally do that on my table saw here in my backyard. Yeah. As I just, wood blade, I have a new blade for it, and it's like a weird, they call it a combo blade. Okay. And... Because, you know, like a cross-cut and a rip-saw blade are different. Mm -hmm. Well, they have a different tooth shape, right? Different tooth shape and a different tooth count. Like a cross-cut's like a 24-tooth, really aggressive yeah. setup. And then the uh, ripping one is like a 64-tooth setup with a different geometry. This is like a... They say it's like a combo hybrid. So it's got like... 30 something teeth and the teeth are different shapes and like different heights. It's really weird. Hmm. Diablo makes it, which I think is like a subsidiary of like Milwaukee or something like that. But it's a really interesting blade. And I was cutting a uh, regular pine and stuff with it and it worked great. And man, that thing just rips right through aluminum too. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm looking at this right now. Yeah. It's got some funky tooth shapes. Yeah. It works great, though. It cuts through aluminum like butter. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, so you know how modern saw blades, you look at them, they have laser-cut little, like, squiggles in them, right? To reduce yeah. ringing, basically, and vibration. I wonder, did somebody analyze blades and use a computer to do that, or did somebody just, like, put some S-squiggles in there and be like, yeah, good enough, this works? No, seriously, <laughs> like, I wonder how they actually created those. I bet you you can um, simulate it. Simulate that, yeah. Yeah. Because all you're doing is probably like, okay, it runs at this RPM. It's going to generate this frequency through the blade. Mm -hmm. Where can we put cutouts to reduce that amplitude? Yeah, and they have really weird shapes because I'm looking at one now that has, you know, squiggles, like S squiggles, and then it also has cutouts that look like question marks in them. So it doesn't look like somebody just guessed at it. <laughs> Obviously, no. somebody didn't. But because uh, there's some kind of thought behind it yeah I, I really like that blade they call them stabilizer vents yeah i think that's what they call them is stabilizer vents yeah. on the marketing for that blade i know someone out there that's probably like a woodworker is probably yelling at me for using a table saw wood blade I'm yelling at you. that's like this this crazy combo blade to cut aluminum but man it cuts great <laughs> until it doesn't until it does, it just wears out the carbide. Oh man, I, you're gonna. So the my previous blade, but finally I had that the previous blade on that machine for, I want to say like three years at this point. Don't tell me it threw a tooth. No, you know what wore it out though. What 
I cut 14 gauge steel on it. <laughs> and it worked great. And then it just actually it cut the steel just fine. And then I went to go cut wood on it like the next day and it just didn't cut. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm surprised it didn't just bind in there. No, it, it ripped right through. It didn't seem to have any problem at all cutting through that sheet metal. But it eventually had some problems. Oh, yeah. When I went to go cut, like, wood, it just, it would cut it. It just was not cutting it as cleanly as it should. Oh, sure. Well, yeah, at the, at some point, you're just rip, tearing through the wood. You know, you're just pulling the fibers yeah. as opposed to slicing yeah, that, That's what we're starting to do. And so I was like, okay, it's time to get a new blade. Yeah. But the thing is, like, I've cut so much wood and aluminum on that thing. It took until I cut, and I finished the part. It actually cut the steel better than I thought it would. Like, it actually made really clean cuts on it. I'm like, and I don't have to be burnt? This is awesome. Hmm. It just costs $35 every cut. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah, I only did like four cuts with the uh, steel. Yeah, 14 gauge is not thin stuff. So No, it wasn't too bad. Actually, no, I take that back. It's 11 gauge. So that's thicker, right? Yeah, it's thicker. I guess you could get like a cold cut saw blade and then get like a three phase motor on a table saw. And then you can really and then use a VFD to actually set the RPM low. Then you can like use a table saw to cut steel. But the tooth shape is not. No, I'm saying is get a cold cut saw blade. So get the proper blade. But. Yeah, and then you, and then also the cold cut yeah, 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 and then spray coolant on it while cutting. No, cold cut saws usually cut dry. Yeah, I've been wanting to get a cold cut saw because I cut so much like aluminum and stuff <laughs> on my table saw. You probably cut more metal than wood, right? No, I do. I I cut way more metal on that machine than than wood. Then then why not just keep one of those on there? <sighs> no, because it spins it way too fast. You just have to push the material faster into it <laughs> so the wood blades are well the, the thing is the rpm the cold cut blades aren't designed to be spun that fast yeah and we're getting to like the danger zone of the podcast now right they probably could be spun that fast but they're not rated like they're stamped not to go over whatever rpm and so i feel safer running a wood blade that's rated at that rpm on that machine to cut <laughs> aluminum than getting a cold cut blade uh otherwise but what I really need to do is just get a cold cut saw. saw. Yeah, th with a motor that's yeah. rated for the right RPM. Right RPM. That's that's the right way to do it. The other thing about it is if you're running that fast of a blade, or if you're, you're taking a blade that fast, it's only taking little nibbles, little tiny nibbles. Yes. And that's not efficient at getting the heat out. You got to have, it has to grip and shear off enough and throw that piece with the heat. Yes. If it doesn't, the heat builds up in the blade and then, you're compounding the danger on that. Well, it's in the blade and the material. Y yeah. Yes. It's the exact same thing with, with CNCs. Like, yeah, it seems counterintuitive sometimes, but you have to make the machine go faster. So it makes big enough chips to throw the heat away from your material. Away from it. Oh, well, that's totally what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I have one of those chop saws that you have. Uh -huh. not, well, not chop saws, uh, the cutoff wheel, yeah. the, the 12 inch cutoff wheel. And those are great. So I use that when I'm cutting like tubing. All day. Like I know I'm going to weld this with a MIG welder. I'm going to cut tubing with it. The thing is that when I ever want to do more precision than what a MIG welder needs, yeah. that thing sucks for it because it, it, that blade always wanders. Yeah, you have to accept like 
this is going to be anywhere between plus minus 20 degrees <laughs> on this cut. Well, 20 is a lot more, way more than it is, but yes. I'm, I'm being a little bit over, like five, but it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's the, like five degrees. Easy. It does not cut straight. That's for damn sure. No. And it leaves like crazy burrs on it. So that machine, I like if I'm cutting square tubing that I know I'm like welding into a desk or a frame or whatever, sure. And I'm, I'm going to use MIG. Yeah, it doesn't matter because I, I can square it up on my bench and then just fill the gap. <laughs> but if I had to take squeeze some hot metal into it. Yeah, if I had to take it, though, or like it's aluminum. First of all, aluminum doesn't cut well on that machine at all. That grinding wheel just gums up, but um, the cutoff wheel gums up. So I really just need to get the proper saw, but man, that table saw just just rips it. I guess if you're trying to make a big long cuts in aluminum, that's when the heat would get you. But if you're just cutting extrusion, man, it's fine. Yeah, definitely should get a cold cut saw. I actually watched one of those vertical band saws. Oh, those are super cool. Oh, it'd be so nice because that that's actually like the best way to get the cut because that doesn't wander. The blade doesn't wander. So that's how you get your precision cuts. It also takes a long time to cut through, but that's the way to do it. Yeah, but it's another one of those situations where, at least with some of them, you, you grab a beer and you let it cut. Yeah, because cold cut saws are just not that expensive. They're not that cheap either. Like that cutoff wheel tool is literally like 80 bucks at Harbor Freight. I was just looking at some cold cut saw blades and they were 90 bucks for just the blade. Yeah, the blades themselves are expensive too, yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, like, do I just save up and just get, like, a vertical bandsaw? The problem with the vertical bandsaws is they're, or the horizontal bandsaw I'm talking about. I'd rather, if I'm going to get a bandsaw, I'd rather get a vertical, though. Because then you can actually, like, move your material and wiggle it. Yeah. The horizontal ones are good for cutting tubing, though, perfectly straight. But they're huge. Like, they take up so much floor space. They have a lot of real estate on your floor for like if you're using it every day no problem yeah but i've wanted one for so long for just like i know i want to like make a coffee table and i need to cut tubing to you know make the frame for it great but i can't justify a whole bandsaw that then just takes a ton of room yeah. for a little project like that yeah i probably should just get a cold cut saw eventually <sighs> or just keep using table saw yeah Though, what I said earlier, VFDs have really dropped in price. Put a three-phase motor on it. Then you can just dial that speed down to where your cold cut saw needs to be and put a cold cut blade on it. And then you can cut real steel on it. Yeah, that might be the way to go. I bet you that costs the same as like a cold cut saw, though, <laughs> in the end. Try to get a five-horsepower three-phase. But it, it would be pretty cool to have your table saw double duties then. Yeah, because then you could just jack the speed up and put the right blade on it for... And you're on wood. wood. Yeah. That would save space on tooling. Well, if you're still listening, thank you. Because <laughs> that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. <laughs> we are your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macrofab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at macrofab.com slash slack.